Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode, I have a co-host, Ganga Devi Braun. And if you've not already experienced my conversation, one-on-one conversation with Ganga Devi, uh, you owe yourself uh, that because it's fabulous. She's an incredible young woman who brings a deep ecological understanding and a deep spiritual understanding. And here we have a conversation with Deba Zarko, who is the author of Beyond Hope, Letting Go of a World in Collapse, which is a highly recommended book in this field. And I want to draw special attention to, you'll, you'll see in here where our worldviews, Ganga Devi's and mine and Deb's, where they overlap, where they diverge. But I want to draw special attention to uh, Deb's sense of activated presence and how that allows her to fully embrace mortality and death as what gives life meaning. Um, and what allows her to be present to the tremendous challenges of our world um, without attachment and with a heart of generosity and, um, and presence, activated presence. So you're going to enjoy this. So Deb, thank you for being part of this post-Doom conversation series. Uh, I only became aware of your work a couple months ago and then uh, ordered your book Beyond Hope and read about half of it and some of the other stuff on your website. And um, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, uh, help us sort of get you, help us ha have a sense. I mean, a longer question in terms of your whole story or trajectory, if you wanna do that as one, but um, I've asked uh, Ganga Devi uh, uh, Braun to co-host with me. And um, so we'll both sort of dance in and out of the questions but if you could at the start just give us a sense of who you are and what you're passionate about what you're committed to i mean that's changed so much over the years uh particularly with the awareness that i hold inside of me um you know with the collapse that's going on i i would have said in the past that my passion was uh to create change out there in the world to see a more compassionate world and to, uh, you know, as an activist, just, just fight for change. And that's changed a lot for me over the years, um, particularly in the last five years, I'd say. And for me now, the focus is more inward. So the change that I wish to see out there starts with me. And so my commitment now is to my own personal evolution so that I am as closely aligned with my, my capital S self, my soul, whatever you want to call it, as possible so that when I'm out in the world, that's what I bring to the world. So it's, it's like Gandhi is saying, be the change that you wish to see in the world. And I've, by turning everything more inward, I'm actually noticing more change, at least in my own world, than I ever did when I was a hardcore activist. So I would say now my commitment and passion in life is my own personal evolution. And uh, in, in the past, I would have thought that was selfish, but now I recognize the selflessness of that, that passion and, and how much change it is, it is uh, creating in, in the world out there. And it's effortless, which is, <laughs> it's so counter to everything that I was 
I stood for for so many years of my life, but I'll get more into that later. So I'd say that I'm just a person who um, is living, learning how to become a human being rather than a doing. So I've let go of a lot of the doing and my days now consist of unfolding moments and I don't have agendas for each day anymore. I just let it all unfold naturally. And it's such a beautiful way to live. It was disorienting at first. And there, I, I confess there's still times that it's still a little bit disorienting because I want to fill the days with things to do. Um, but I would never consider myself to be a busy person because I think that busy is just a code word for distracted. And so I consider myself to be very present and, um, yeah, just learning how to become the best person that I can possibly be in whatever time is left on this planet. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I'm curious about the language that we've used to for the series post-Doom. And what language do you use? What language do you find yourself using when speaking about this deteriorating, this collapsing time and what's, what's unfolding and, and likely in our future? Well, you know, um, initially I had... I did resonate with the word doom, but then over time, you know, with my own evolution, I, I kind of, uh, I felt a, a distancing from that, that term. And so right now I can honestly say, and I'm not really a fan of the terms doom or post doom primarily for me, because it's language that I now see as kind of steeped in a type of victim consciousness. So to me, the word doom has a negative connotation that implies that our predicament has been done to us. So done to us by oil companies, corporations, governments, the global elite, Trump, Bolsonaro, and you know, that whole global swing toward the type of oppressive leadership that's, that's sweeping the globe, including Canada, because we have an election coming up shortly and it's certainly taking over here too. So, from a consciousness perspective, all of that, all of that, you know, the Trump and the corporations, all of that stuff only exists because of the collective choices that we've said yes to in our willingness to comply and conform to the severing of our connection to what we are as pure consciousness or source energy or whatever you want to call the spiritual being that we are expressing in a finite physical world. So, you know, I, I don't see myself as a victim to any of that because once I started embarking on the path to fully commit to claiming myself, I just don't see it as doomy anymore. So mm -hmm. as, you know, as a collective, I don't, I don't see that we're, that we're victims of doom or post-doom or anything along those lines um, because we're just, we're creators who've separated ourselves from um, the power of our true identity as spiritual beings expressing in a physical world. So, you know, it's a simple concept, but it's so foreign to the majority of human beings on this planet. And because of that, we normalize the abnormal to sustain a habituated status quo at all costs. And therefore we mindlessly end up perpetuating a civilization of brutality. So, you know, for me, like ultimately the root of our problems is our separation from our soul selves. Mm. And, um, you know, we can't even consider creating anything meaningful from that place. So for me, 
um, anything with the word doom in it has a bit of a childish quality to it. And as far as I'm concerned, I see the inter interconnected dots of collapse occurring all around us in social systems and ecosystems and climate and you know so many other, the plethora of ways that it's happening around the planet. I see that as a provocation to awaken to that great and empowering remembrance of what we are as pure consciousness expressing uniquely in a physical world. So in this, we have a wonderful opportunity to free ourselves from our civilization, this toxic civilization that we're all you know, living in. And we can live very differently by becoming so much more of who and what we've always been meant to be, even in the face of biosphere collapse. And personally, I don't see anything doom-like in that. So that's kind of where I'm at with the word doom. It's been yeah, an evolution for me. Yeah, just to give you a sense of history, because it began where you are, that's why I want to share this. I, I don't share this story. I think I've only shared it once or twice prior. Is that Connie and I uh, did a, a number of programs. Uh, I'm a minister and Connie's a science writer. We both do, I'm a religious naturalist minister, I'm a sort of eco-theologian. But we do programs all over North America. And so we were in Eastern Canada for about a month and a half just this last spring uh, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Ottawa. Um, and Toronto. And while we were in Ottawa, uh, Connie was finishing up an email that she sent to a, an author uh, who's just completing a book on assisted migration. Connie's a main point person. My wife is a main point person in assisting native trees in migrating north faster than any other animal can move them. And uh, so she concluded the email. She said, yeah, we just did this retreat for ministers um, uh, and we gave them a lot of doom, but you know, there's only so much doom you can give ministers because then they got to go into the pulpit and share it with their congregations. And she said, so pretty quickly we got to a post doom place and you know, post doom has a gorgeous sunrise period mm -hmm. end of end of email. And I was like, yeah, oh, doom has a gorgeous sunrise. That's pretty kick ass. <laughs> I like that. And so the very next day we spent the day with Paul Chaferka and Paul Beckwith, both of whom who live in Ottawa. Um, and we floated this idea of a post-Doom conversation series with them. Uh, I, I see Doom as the midpoint between denial and regeneration. And that regeneration yeah. with or without humans. Uh, so Doom is the midpoint between denial and regeneration with or without us. And I see post-Doom, or this is my languaging of it, is what opens up when we remember who we are, accept what is, in, what is inevitable, and invest in what is pro-future and soul nourishing. So I was delighted mm. that you mentioned the piece about remembering who we are, because that's a key piece in my own understanding. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, personally I, find doom language a little too human-centered, a little too anthropocentric for my own taste. Totally get that. Yes, I'm totally on the same page as you. Uh, you know, and it makes it sound like so gloomy. And I mean, it's not it's not wonderful what's playing out for sure. But like I said, you know, it's such a great opportunity for us to become so much more. And I mean, I love your definition. Your definition is actually is, is much better than doom language. I think <laughs> you got to come up with another, you know, language is so powerful, but I think well, that, I think that what you've come up with as a definition is incredible. Thanks. Well, Catherine Ingram, one of the major inspirations initially in this was Catherine Ingram's Facing Extinction Long Form Essay, Jim Bendel's Deep Adaptation Paper and some of his other stuff, and Dar Jamel and Barbara Cecil's Truth Outposts. That was one of the things that was a major inspiration. And Catherine Ingram was not real keen on doom. A lot of Buddhists aren't. But uh, she said, you know, she was saying, well, what about post-collapse? And 
And what Connie and I were trying to get at was the feeling of, oh shit, that a lot of people have when they realize that perpetual progress is not in the cards. Mm -hmm. um, and so whatever you want to call that, it was that emotional feeling. And I mentioned to Joanna Macy, who I've known for 30 years and is a major mentor, and I mentioned, I said, yeah, we're getting some pushback for some, some of the spiritual teachers that are part of this. And her response was so classically Joanna and, and, and emphatic. She said, don't you dare change that title. That's exactly what we need. Post-doom is what, what our times call for. And I was like, okay, well, if, if Joanna's going to say it with that kind of strength, I'm going with it. I love that. <laughs> there you go. I ha I feel when I, because I'm also one of those Buddhists who was kind of like, wait, <laughs> what is this language? I'm not sure. Um, but the more I've been sitting with it and as I've been co-hosting, um, I've been feeling how, like just the resonance of the word doom, like when you say it, it, it you feel it in your belly, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I feel it in, in the depths of my belly, which is where I feel so much of my dread and and fear and pain uh that does arise when i when i notice uh okay that that other piece of like evidence of collapse like i'm you know gathering the information of what's going on in the world and and i have that like sense of like dropping in my stomach that the word doom like literally gives me the physiological sense of and um and so then the idea of like what comes after that uh, like what's the the breath that then like brings me back into the present moment and into how can I respond in this in in my place and where I am right now uh, and that's I think that's where all of these conversations have been going is like how can I how can I embody what comes after that that dread moment that um, so many people are are awakening to over and over and over again on this planet. Maybe I need to write a book be called Beyond Doom. <laughs> well, I think everyone would benefit. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I know, I know that feeling that you're yeah. talking about, and totally, I, uh, and it's a visceral memory from you know several years ago, and then that's what that really catalyzed uh, the accelerated urgency for my own personal evolution, and that is what is. I mean, this sounds kind of hokey, but it really is saving me is, is yeah. just, you know, getting closer to what I am as a spiritual being that's infinite, you know, like, I don't really know any other language that doesn't sound kind of new agey, but that's really what it is. Because I know that this, I mean, really, I mean, we're all born onto this planet with a, a finite timeline anyway. So, I mean, it just so happens that we incarnated at a time when um, we as a species are creating the perfect conditions for our extinction and some there's going to be one generation eventually that incarnated during that time and you know it's it's kind of disorienting when you finally come to that realization but that we're it at least in my reality um, but you know like I, I just um, I really do see it as a provocation to, to, to become so much more. Yeah. 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 I love that. So your personal story is so essential to who you are and, and the work that you do in the world. And uh, you just kind of hinted at a little bit, um, you know, touching on this whole process for you. I'd love if you um, would please share more about your own personal journey of awakening um, to the global predicament that we're in and um, particularly any any really dark points that you've um, transited to get to where you are now. 
But uh, you know how they always say it's darkest before dawn, right? Um, okay, so, wow. Uh, that goes back way back, but I will do my best to abbreviate this journey. Um, it goes way back to when I was a child. So, you know, when you're middle-aged, I mean, I could, I could uh, take you through the decades, but I, I will abbreviate it because you don't need the, the minutia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it started as a child where I already intuitively knew that I was mm -hmm. born into a dying world on a rapidly changing planet. And a planet that I knew um, would, in my lifetime, become uninhabitable for life on the planet as we know it. And just a quick sidebar here. I want to make it clear that I intentionally differentiate world from planet. So when I refer, refer to world, I'm, in particular, I'm referring to global human civilization. So um, when I was quite young, I became pretty adept at suppressing this internal knowing from my everyday awareness so I could have some semblance of a life that wasn't constantly overtaken by grief and anger and frustration and despair. Um, the thing about the human psyche, as we all know, though, is that once a deep inner truth is known, it can never be unknown. So... Uh, Needless to say, for my entire life, my inner truth was never very far from my everyday awareness. And this led me quite naturally toward activism. And in my case, in particular, it was animal rights and environmental activism. And like most committed activists, I invested immense amounts of energy fighting and resisting what was never meant to change. In fact, now that I am where I am, um, from a spiritual perspective, I can now see the natural intelligence of everything currently unfolding, despite how ugly it all is. And the way I see it, the collapse of life as it currently exists on this planet, um, not excluding us, of course, will ensure the perpetuation of life in the long-term future, just like all other extinction events that preceded this one, at least from the stories that we've been told about past extinction events. And personally, I actually have no doubt that whatever comes after us will be far more evolved, far more internally connected, and by default, far more connected to all life. And I don't think that I'm being a Pollyanna. I really just, you know, from the stories we've been told about past extinction events, that seems to be the continuation of how life unfolds. So anyway, it makes me feel a little better anyway. Um, so to fast forward to my personal, my personal story, in 2014, I began having relentless, and I mean like they were, they were just, they were, they took over these premonitions about the collapse of the ocean. And they were so vivid and so profound that I just couldn't ignore them. And I certainly couldn't push them away into the recesses of my mind anymore. So basically, the inner truth that I'd managed to distance myself from for so long as a child, it, it, it felt like it rushed into my consciousness in ways that were just impossible to suppress. And in no longer being able to distance myself from it, I was forced to face it head on. And this catalyzed the most profound grief of my life, which I called, uh, like I, I called it in Beyond Hope, I called it Gaia grief. And this was the provocation for me. This was, um, it provoked an urgency to know myself, my deepest core self, like never before. 
and to become deeply intimate with the very soul of who and what I am. So I, it, it became a very profoundly spiritual provocation for me. So uh, the intuitive knowing of biosphere collapse that prompted me to write Beyond Hope was accompanied by my very recent experiences of ex ecosystem collapse, and that was unfolding right before my eyes. Mm -hmm. So this was when I was living out on the West Coast uh, in, in coastal British Columbia. And it really started to accelerate in the, in the past five years. So I, I've already lived through wildfires and droughts and floods. And then I moved here to the Ottawa area. And last, last fall, there was tornadoes. Mm -hmm. I lived through the polar vortexes. And that was brutal. Like it was, tremendous it was flooding. awful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had terrible flooding here this spring. Um, and, you know, the house that I'm living in right now, we actually rented this place 11 years ago and we're very fortunate to, to get it back 11 years later. So I actually have uh, a, a baseline to compare the 22 acres of forest around me. Um, and what I'm noticing is that the forests are eerily silent. And I see that almost everywhere that I go hiking with my dogs. So the forests, forests are really silent. There's far less wildlife than I used to see, far fewer birds. And, you know, we have an organic garden. We used to see garter snakes and, you know, good insects. Now we see ticks, but we used to see good insects and uh, they're just not around anymore. Uh, so, you know, I was seeing all of that. I, I have been seeing that. So I'm using past tense. I did see a lot of that stuff and experience a lot of that stuff on the West Coast. And I have been experiencing that even here in the Ottawa area. And I'm currently noticing um, so many other things. And, you know, going back to the ocean and the, on the West Coast and even on the East Coast where I was briefly last summer, I was noticing um, you know, from starfish to crabs and squid and jellyfish and seabirds, they were all like dead and dying in huge numbers right before my eyes. So it became really clear to me that there was just no more negating the breakneck speed and severity of the breakdown of the web of life anymore. And rather than be a victim to despair, it became a provocation for me to live in a way that makes much more sense to me. And that is, connected to my deepest inner self and therefore more connected to the natural world and who and what means most to me in my life. So that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Like, I feel like I'm living the way I should have always been living. Hmm. Um, it also prompted me to leave the West coast and move back to my birth home in the Ottawa area to be closer to the people that I care mo most about. Yeah. And it inspired me to actually redefine what home is and so for me, home is not as much a geographical location anymore as it is an internal state. Uh, so the external environment certainly contributes to my feelings of home within myself, but it's no longer how I define home. Uh, and because I no longer question my internal guidance, I didn't have to figure it all out in my head before I acted and I moved from the, you know, from BC to the Ottawa area. Rather, inst so instead, I just acted and moved, and then I had insights about living differently, and uh, and living differently, especially in ways that are much simpler and far more removed from industrial civilization. Uh, and you know, as I 
as I moved through my grief and became really committed to my personal evolution, I also befriended my mortality. And I now know without any question that there's so much more beyond my finite physical existence. And in this, um, I've been able to reach a state of acceptance that's given me a really profound sense of peace. And uh, in fact, I feel actually quite liberated. And this acceptance has radically changed how I've chosen to live what, whatever remains of my life. So like I said earlier, I mean, just moments are what define my day. I, I don't try and figure anything out anymore. I just kind of go with the flow and it, it's wonderful. So now, uh, rather than distance myself from my lifelong internal truth that we are living through social, ecological, and climate collapse leading to our imminent extinction as a species, and who knows when that'll be. I, for me, it feels like it's in my lifetime. Uh, I now distance myself from a world that has always felt cruel, oppressive, and violent to me. And so now I live my life with what I call activated presence. And I'm just gonna pull up a little section here in my book, because um, there may be viewers out there who've never heard of me like, like you guys and who don't know about my book. So for me, the best way to define activated presence is to just read a short, short section of my book. So I'm just gonna pull this up here. I wanna just mention that because I found the way you organize the book, um, part one, asleep, the eyes wide open, quote unquote, decimation of earth and soul. And I, I do want to ask you more about soul and self at the, at the way you use it, the way Louise Braun uses it. And part two, awakening, living fully, mm -hmm. loving hard and letting go. I, I found both of those quite helpful. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I, I, well, I think I wrote it in the introduction of my book, it was going to, when I first started writing the book, it was going to be something completely different. And, you know, I still was hanging on to hopium <laughs> with a, a global awakening, not realizing that it was really all about me. That was the awakening. And so, yeah, I, it, the first half of the book was hard to write but I needed to get that out of me. It was, it's been like these deep, dark truths that I've been holding for so long that I just needed to give voice to so that I could really feel uh, breath when I was writing part two. So um, anyway, going back to activated presence, that's in part two. And that's, that's a huge part of the way, well, it's actually the way I live my life now. So uh, I just found the section here. Activated presence is an embodied awakening to my most profound essential nature, my primal, unconditioned, deeply connected soul self. Activated presence does not imply inaction. It inspires a spontaneity in action in the present moment for the present moment. If an awakened future was ever to be had, spontaneous action in the present moment for the present moment is the only way it could have been. In activated presence, we free ourselves from our addiction of trading the present moment for the worn out strategy of thinking about, worrying about, and creating for tomorrow. Instead, we live fully today and allow tomorrow to emerge from that. It takes great courage and a sincere desire to carve out a meaningful life to override our commitment to the past and to the future. In this deep courage, we discover a new place to stand 
Far too often, we lose ourselves in the habits and patterns of the past or to the uncertainty of the future, forgetting that our point of power is always in the now of our existence. What better judge of character than how we think, choose, behave, and act in the face of the impossible odds of our present reality? Even if we still had thousands of years left, should we not still act as if life mattered? Should we not still care about animals, earth, and each other? We are being implored in these end times to live the way we've always been meant to live, fully, authentically, compassionately, and activated in pure presence. I sometimes say, and I believe, that whether our species goes extinct in the next five years, um, which is actually possible if you know the, the, the positive reinforcement, the self-reinforcing feedback of the Arctic gets really wagged out super fast, mm-hmm. um, or if we last another five million years, uh, no mammal our size lasts much longer than that, and five million years on Earth's timeline, on the universe's timeline, is really short. Uh, five million years is about a, a half, or, or it's two weeks, it's a month half of a month on a cosmic century timeline. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think that living fully in the present, the way you call us to, um, to be a blessing to the larger than human community in that process um, is holy work, whether our species goes extinct real soon or pretty soon on the cosmic t- timeline. <laughs> I don't see it as a bad thing. I mean, considering what we, and I'm generalizing, what we as a species, I mean, certainly not the present company excluded, let's put it that way, but what we as a generalized species have allowed ourselves to become by separating ourselves start from ourselves. So like when I say separating ourselves, our conditioned selves from our true, authentic, deep core, personal, well, spiritual selves. And our that, green self, our, se- our self that includes the biosphere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because there is no separation from any of that. But starting with, you know, sep- that self-separation, capital S self, soul separation, whatever you want to call that. Starting with that, we've separated ourselves from everything and we've actually become a rather ugly species. So all of the, the our, our, our essential altruistic nature is non-existence not because we believe that we're something that we're not so yeah, I, might, I don't I, see our extinction as a bad thing yeah I'm, I'm, I might challenge you or push against the idea that we're a, an ugly species we're an ugly culture we're an ugly civilization culture, yes I, sorry um, yes I agree. I, I, I agree I think there are there are still cultures that exist in the periphery that haven't been completely wiped out that still have an I vow uh, and I uh, you know th- that sense of intimate, humble, generous, co-creative participation with the body of life. So that's still a part of our species. So I'm not ready to write our whole species off as evil uh, <laughs> quite yet, but certainly this rapacious industrial form of humanity is uh, homo, what, what William Catton, the most important book I've ever read, Overshoot, calls Homo Colossus, where each of us uses 10 to 30 times the resources and generates that much yeah. waste. Homo Colossus. Good riddance to that species. Yes, that's what exactly. I can say. <laughs> Well, uh, leaning into that, how do you see human nature? Um, uh, our foibles, our gifts, I mean, how, how is your sense of our inborn strengths and limitations? Um, how does that affect your interpretation of our, of our times and our challenges? That's a great question. I, you know, I, every single one of us is, as my, my dear friend and mentor, Louise Lebrun, says she says we are god forces so 
and she's not religious. She's, you know, she's, there's no dogma in the way she uh, expresses herself. Um, so, you know, God tends to have a bit of a loaded connotation as far as dogma is concerned. So just want to make that very clear. There's no dogma in, in, in God force. Yeah, I was, I was she, delighted in her forward to your book. Um, I got that sense that she uses God talks similarly to I do, the way I do is just God is a mythic name or a sacred name or a proper name for life. For yeah, reality. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, for anybody listening who are watching who has a hard time with the word God, you can just replace it with whatever works for you. Um, so she, the way she explains it is that we are all God force energy expressing uniquely in a physical world. So we are not an expression of God force energy. We are God force energy expressing uniquely. With that in mind, when I look into the eyes of somebody who has no clue about what's going on and, and is just is living their humdrum, habituated, culturally conditioned life and believes that that's there that's all there is i can still when i look into their eyes like when i look into the eyes of a grocery store clerk you know and i i bring all of myself to that interaction i can see in their eyes that god force energy mm -hmm. so i don't believe that this cultural conditioning that um that the masses, like the collective of human beings, you know, have, have attached to as real. I don't believe it is real. I believe that, that, that moment, that momentary glance that I get from somebody when I feel that connection before they shut down again, that's what's real. And it's just, if, if, if there was a way to tap into that all of the time, we would have a very different world. We would be living in a very different reality. So I know that the, it's not the human condition. It's the conditioned human. There's so many people out there who talk about the human condition being so problematic, but the human condition in its natural state is, is beautiful. And I just want to tie in what you said earlier, shared when you were sharing about your personal story, um, you said something that echoes my experience and most people that I speak to share this as well, that when you were a child, you knew that something was wrong. Like you knew that something was, was happening that was not being fully talked about. You knew that the world was alive, but it was in this, this weird predicament. Like there, you know, there's this, there's this felt sense that I think so many of us have when we are children, um, before before all of that conditioning comes in that that right. is like deep knowing and um and then we have to we have to numb ourselves we we adapt so that we can have like a normal childhood and we can go to school and we can have conversations with people within what some people call like consensus reality we have to kind of <laughs> take this this shallow uh way of of moving through the world on um, partially to numb ourselves because, and also partially because we just don't have the language when we're children, if we're not conditioned to be able to articulate what is so um, painful about 
the 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 conditioning and the culture that we were born into um just as i i shared uh in my conversation series that like i was born uh, i have a lot of phys chronic physical illness um that i didn't know until i was an adult i didn't have the language to articulate it and so i acted out in ways that um that were not and, and I adapted to like numb myself in ways that mm. were not conducive to the healing that needed to happen. But because as a child, I wasn't, um, I wasn't prepared or uh, supported in being able to really bring all that forward, which is, I think um, there's a beautiful opportunity right now in, in the activation of so many young people's voices. Um, like the ultimate strategy right now of the, the, um, school strikes and everything i don't know how like effective that is strategically but i know that like long term having children have a sense of my voice counts and i can articulate these things that i know are deeply wrong um that's something that i i see having a, a different kind of ecosystem service than many people i think are talking about i totally agree with that because really when you look at activist movements throughout history and i just recently um put out an essay about that and I know I'm speaking from personal experience as an act, a longtime activist for decades. I don't believe that it's going to have any impact out there. I mean, none of the large movements have, but like you said, the impact is a personal one. Yeah. So they recognize that their voice matters, you know, whether it's heard or not, they're expressing themselves. And that is, that's personal evolution. So that's really what it comes down to. And if everybody claimed their voice and claimed their truth and just lived the way uh, they were meant to live in alignment with, with that inner moral compass, we wouldn't have to fight against anything. Everything would just collapse on its own. Like, <laughs> really, when you think about it. So I see that, I see the fighting against the activism. And, I, and, and again, I speak from personal experience all of this fighting against and railing against these systems that are never meant to change is just another form of separation with a, a, a moral righteousness attached to it. It's not gonna make any change. Um, you know, I mean, I have great admiration for uh, little Greta Thunberg. Like she's just, she's amazing how she's going out there and speaking and fearless. And I applaud her courage and her fearlessness. And my hope is that she's not attached to long shot outcomes that are uh, probably never going to happen. If anything, I hope she's claiming more of herself through this process, because that's one powerful little being just like Jane Goodall, you know, I just saw a picture this morning, actually, the two of them together. And I thought, wow, that's a power duo. But you said, yeah. you said something about earlier about, um, you know, having a, some semblance of a normal life. And how sad is it that we develop this or take on this cultural conditioning to survive and to, to, uh, to become normal mm -hmm. when normal is so far from natural yeah. that, you know, we, we just, we end up feeling lost. I love that. And I, and uh, taking that kind of microcosmic view of of that like inner self that's that the soul that you keep on sp speaking to and I and I hope that we drop into that more um, and also that like microcosm of the child that is also within all of us um, I'd love to invite us to zoom out further again into this the large story of the evolution of 
the universe and of the planet. Um, there's a beautiful Joanna Macy quote that we're incorporating into this uh, whole conversation series where she says, there is science now to construct the story of the journey we have made on this earth, the story that connects us with all beings. Right now, we need to remember this story, to harvest it and to taste it, for we are in a hard time and it is knowledge of the bigger story that is going to carry us through. And um, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'd love for you to expand on how this wider story of the evolution of our world, of perhaps the mass extinction events, um, or even before this earth was even created has informed your worldview and um, how you show up in the world, to the world. That's interesting for me because, um, you know, the stories of the past used to mean something to me, but not so much anymore. And this, uh, you know, this, this all has been unfolding as I continue with my personal evolution. And I, I know I keep saying I sound like a broken record with that, but it, it really is um, who I am and the most important thing to me and what I'm most passionate about. So I don't really see any meaning or, or relevance in attaching myself to or exploring or delving into, into any past stories to ease the burden of what I know right now. They don't help me. And it's not going to change anything anyway. So I see no reason for, for lack of a better word, I guess, wasting my energy on being soothed by what used to be. Uh, and um, there's a great Alan Watts quote. Um, I'm just going to pull that up here. He said, uh, change is an illusion because we're always at the place where any future can take us. So what that means for me is that now, right now, is my place of power. And that goes back to what I was reading earlier about activated presence. And so, and that actually applies to all of us. So rather than constantly, constantly uh, looking over our shoulders to past stories that are, for lack of a better word, irrelevant and meaningless today, if we allowed ourselves to stand in the now and continually move forward from each subsequent moment, we'd be standing in a much different place than we are right now in the world. And we'd be creating in each moment rather than remaining stuck in our attachment to, to our stories, our history and our traditions. Um, so, you know, as a culture, <laughs> our capacity to live in the moment without defining the moment and seeking to mold and shape it is virtually absent. So um, I guess our inability to leave the stories of the past behind is why we continue recreating different versions of what we've always known. And you know that saying, history always repeats. And that's because that's all we ever allow ourselves to know. So I see our fixation on history and the stories of the past as, as uh, that's what prevents us from moving forward and creating anything outside of the box of what we've always known, which brings me back to activated presence. And as far as I'm concerned, there really is no other way anymore. So I don't feel like I need to create a story or look to the stories of the past. I just feel like I need to live in the moment and create in that moment. And then the next moment unfolds and I create in that moment and, you know, if it means just 
sitting on the couch and watching the birds at the bird feeder over the winter, then that's, that's a great way to be as far as I'm concerned. And who knows from a consciousness perspective, that being may actually be doing far more than any of the doing in the stories that I've ever known from the past. So my, my, my whole worldview, my whole perception of life as a human being has been challenged by my acceptance of biosphere collapse. Different take on the story, uh, cosmology, because I've been basically um, sort of immersed in sharing a big picture. It's, it turns out that every there's never been a culture in human history that didn't have a story that explained who we are, where we are. And they're not, I don't see them as stories of the past because actually historical consciousness is actually only, you know, a few thousand years, several, seven or 8,000 years old, as far as we know. Most cultures had a narrative, a story that placed them within this larger body that helped them understand who they are, where they are, how to live, how not to live. Um, and so I'm sort of in that tradition of Thomas Berry, Brian Swim, Joanna Macy, the, the, the big picture that isn't about stories in the past, but that helped me, for example, understand the rise and fall of civilizations, unsustainable civilizations. For example, that helped me understand death as an integral part of life, that death is not separate from life, but that you can't have life without death. And so, um, but fundamentally, I agree with you that whatever, how we think about past, present, or future, if it doesn't allow us to support us or enable us or inspire us to be fully in the present, living with as much integrity and soul nourishment, again, soul, not small self S, mm -hmm. but larger self S, then our stories do us a disservice rather than a service. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Living, living in the present is is really challenging. It's, it's taken me a long time to get where I'm at and I certainly haven't mastered it. If, if, uh, if I was ever to master it, I'd probably turn into a pillar of white light and be somewhere off floating in the ether of pure consciousness, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I just, I just wanna say that I love your response to that question because there's, um, yeah, there's like a, there's a fierceness to, uh, to the activated presence that, in the way that you're bringing it forward and like this tremendous clarity that um, I think for me at least, I know that I, I need to be committed to holding both at the same time, you know, that like the deep time um, contextualization of to understand where we are, at least at this point in my life, I, mm -hmm. I need to be in kind of continuous deep contemplation of, of that. Um, and I also need that, that profound and beautiful reminder of um of this moment and i find that like for me personally like returning to the body is like like the only thing that can yeah. fully anchor me in here and now because because you can't be in you can't be in the abstraction um if you're if you're really present with your body and um yeah, I'm, you're, you're just stimulating a lot of self-reflection for me. I know that one of my coping mechanisms is intellectualization and um, to, to find refuge and guidance from the large story without, uh, without escaping into that as a, as a coping mechanism, I think is a, is a big task for me personally. And I'm really grateful for you bringing the fierce clarity forward um, in, into this conversation. And, and again, you know, it's, it's been, an evolutionary journey for me because, uh, you know, you mentioned Joanna Macy's work and Brian Schwinn and, uh, 
can't remember the other one. Thomas Berry. Thomas Berry, yeah. And I'm familiar with all of their work. And in fact, Joanna Macy was so helpful for me. Her work was so helpful for me for so many years. And I, I am eternally grateful to her for being such a pioneer in, in this, this, this different way for so long. And I, you know, I see her work as a profound stepping stone to, to the place where I'm at right now. And mm -hmm. so I, like I said, deep, deep gratitude for those people for their work. And I also now see that from moving beyond the necessity for any kind of story anymore has just given me a deeper sense of peace. And I really get it when you talk about, you know, the refuge in the intellectualization. I think that's, uh, you're not an exception. We are conditioned to be that way. And that, that intellectual monkey mind that's constantly trying to figure things out and, and, you know, worries about the future and regrets the past and blah, 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 all of that energy that we waste up in our heads really, uh, it, 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 it distances us from that present moment. And I know that well, I know, I know that really well, the present moment in being is a very new for me. And, um, and it's just, uh, it, there's, there's no other way to live. And there are still moments, like I said earlier, where I feel disoriented, where I feel like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? I'm just, you know, <laughs> not walking the dogs or I'm you know, going off for a swim. And <laughs> I went for a swim early this morning and I was going against the traffic. All the, <laughs> the mindless habituation of those with the J-O-Bs were all heading in one direction. I was going back home to the sanctuary and like, but you know, it's just, it's that cultural conditioning and within me, it's like, I should be doing more. But then I reckon when I think about that, when you, you know, you talk about feeling into the body, when I think about, well, I should be doing something else. It feels awful in my body. So I know that that's a big fat no, and that I'm, I'm on the right path. So yeah, again, thank you both for sharing all of that. I really, I resonate with everything that you're both saying. I'm thrilling in what you're saying too. So <laughs> Um, Ganga Devi, in our conversation we had uh, earlier today, uh, she took the lead on, on impermanence and death. And I want to invite you to do that again, if you'd like to, Ganga <laughs> Devi. But bottom line is we'd love to hear what you, Deb, think about um, your own mortality, our species mortality. Just so much of what you've been sharing um, about presence, like, and even how you got to even where you physically are in this house right now, the choices that you've made um, come from your, your acute awareness of um, of the collapse that is happening ecosystemically, culturally, in all of these ways. And um, yeah, the question is really about impermanence and death and how your relationship and understanding of these elements of life uh, and, and creation and existence have informed how you are now and, um, and what you perhaps would like people to think about in or just experience in relation to to these elements of impermanence and death actually when uh when you sent out the invitation michael for me to join this conversation that was the question that i was most passionate about that was the one that i really wanted to talk about because that to me is the most important conversation to be had in these times and it's the one that actually excites me these days because i i don't well, I mean, let, let's, let, 
I'm going to back up a little bit more here. Take um, your time. This is great. I'm, I'm yeah, glad. this is, it's such a good question. Um, okay, so I was not raised in a religious or even a spiritual household. Uh, and despite that, I've always related more to the non-separate nature of what I am. Not, a, not who, but what I am as a spiritual being in a physical world. So I've always related to that more than the mortal human aspect. And I didn't have the language for it. I just knew that I felt connected to like, such a deep connection to animals and to the natural world. And I knew like as a child that, um, you know, when my father put big hunks of meat on my plate and I was revolted because I just, I loved animals and like, how could I, I, I couldn't eat them, you know, I, I just, so we were at the battle of odds, but I won because it was, <laughs> you know, my inner truth was just so important to me. So I, I was, I've always been really different with the choices that I've made. And they've, they've always been, I guess, to, to um, use, I guess, uh, familiar language would be counterculture. And I don't know where that came from. It just was who I am. So uh, that's just the way it's always been for me. So because of all of that, I don't have the same perception of death. And I say that in quotation marks that most of the world does. For me, death is what gives life meaning. To know that my days are numbered and that my time is short is a powerful gift inspiring me to continually evolve into my infinite potential. And I, whatever that means, like I just know, <laughs> I just know that every single day is, at every single moment is another opportunity for me to create. And with biosphere collapse already well underway, I almost feel a sense of urgency to fully commit myself to the accelerated evolution of my own consciousness. So um, as far as uh, extinction of humanity is concerned, I personally believe that it's, it's pretty delusional to believe that we're gonna get through this. This is not a temporary glitch that we can ride out over the years. I mean, this is the collapse of the biosphere that sustains life. And we're already well into the end of life on earth as we know it. It's been playing out, like I'm, I'm gonna be 56 this year. And even when I was a kid, I'm like, why do, people, why do people spray pesticides and why do they do this? And why is there so much desecration? And that was when there were 3.2 billion people on the planet. Now there's almost eight. Eight people voraciously consuming with a technological disconnect that just makes that voracious appetite even stronger. So, um, you know, I really, I, I cannot see a long-term future for us anymore. And, um, you know, we've already chatted about that. And I, I also, you know, like once our systems of comfort fully collapse, which we're already seeing with electrical grids breaking down in countries around the world, including like, I think it was in Chicago this past winter with that polar vortex, you know, the electrical stuff was breaking down same within Australia with the heat waves so those systems of comfort are already starting to crumble um, you know we're either going to freeze or we're going to fry and the imminent potential for dehydration and starvation from food and water shortages is already beginning to show itself and unlike the Hollywood portrayal of 
the apocalypse, where the world collapses suddenly in dramatic ways, collapse is already upon us and has been for decades. Mm-hmm. And only now it's accelerated beyond our control. And I, I already believe that those feedback loops are already like we've hit those tipping points. So we're, it's like the curve and then we're, we're over the other side of the bell curve. So the mass die off of insects and amphibians, I mean, you can just read, up, read about it anywhere. Fish, birds, and even larger mam- mammals is already, they're already showing us the way. So we may be a prolific and resilient species, but we're not infallible, nor are we immune from our own self-induced in- extinction. So um, when I look at the bigger picture, the sad reality is that most people are incapable of comprehending extinction on a species level, let alone on a personal level. So the conditioned intellect, this is going back to what you were talking about, the intellect, and, um, is it's incapable of comprehending extinction as anything but an abstract concept that only happens to other species. But that's simply not true. And I'm sure that you know you two are both very aware of that. So because most people in our world are so profoundly attached to and identified with the physical body, it becomes impossible to expand beyond the, the conversation of the corporeal. So death is also no more than an abstract concept that the conditioned intellect can easily distance itself from. Mm-hmm. And this is our world. That's what we see in our world. And ironically, in distancing ourselves from death, we, as an entire global species, have also become the grim reapers of all life on this planet, including ourselves. And what's even crazier- Not not all life. Reptiles could do really, really well uh, in much hotter worlds. But you never know. I mean, is it- these are these are unprecedented conditions. No, I know, you know? Like, I know. I'm, I'm being playful, but I, I got a chance. <laughs> I got a chance at Ghost Ranch, New Mexico, recently. There was a council of all beings, and I got a chance. I was inspired to do this in the moment. I hadn't even thought about it. I spoke on behalf of the alligators, and I wanted to talk about the great gator migration, and that in a much much warmer world. I mean, these I, I, again. I was the alligator speaking. I was saying I'm speaking on behalf of reptiles, and you know. For 50 million years, we've been concerned because things have been getting cooler and cooler over the last 50 million years. And we were wondering, how would we possibly get Earth back up to a temperature that where we thrive? And you all dug all this carbon out for us and put it in the atmosphere. And I, this is going to be really tough for you all. And I wish I could say my heart hurts for you, but that's not my way as a cold-blooded reptile. But I got to tell you, we're, we reptiles are really grateful for what you're doing. <laughs> And it's playful, but it's a, it's a way of allowing me to relax into the changes. Just to throw a little wrench into your, your alligator story, has your alligator considered nuclear meltdown? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, when you start adding in some of the things that Guy McPherson and others have, have rightfully uh, pointed to, which is the, the, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, you're looking at a toxification that, you know, One of the things that does give me hope in terms of the big picture is that even if all of our nuclear power plants melt down and we have a World War III, which goes nuclear, um, so worst possible case scenario, um, from the evidence of paleo uh, history, it seems quite likely 
likely that in a month and a half to two months at the most on a cosmic century timeline, that is 12 to 20 million years from now, Earth will have recovered even if all of our nuclear power plants melt down. And that gives me hope that there will be tardigrades, ferns, mosses, uh, jellyfish. There will be life forms that will survive. And trees, even if all trees go out, trees have re-evolved many, many times in Earth's history. So that that allows me to relax into trusting life, trusting evolution, trusting ecology. Oh yeah, totally. I, I totally get that. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. And I trust life, totally. And, and I just read something recently about how Cher the Chernobyl site has come back and it's a lush oasis now just filled with wildlife. That's yeah, pretty I mean, for, awesome. For me, trusting life is a secular way of saying faith in God. It's trusting reality. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to say on impermanence and death before we move to the last two questions? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, like going back to like ge a generalization of the human species, I think that um, like most people have a deeply ingrained belief that their continued existence on this planet is the holy grail. That death, especially in a global extinction event, is a bad thing. But I strongly disagree, going back to your question. I believe that not only facing our own individual mortality, but facing our own collective extinction in the near term, possibly, is the evolutionary catalyst that truly is the holy grail. So I believe that investing energy in, in hoping for long shot possibilities, such as um, you know, collective revolution in consciousness or the age of Aquarius or geoengineering ourselves back to life and so on is it's just another nail in the coffin for our species and you know even if a revolution in consciousness was ever a possibility it would make no difference to the final extinction outcome of on a on an increasingly uninhabitable planet yeah. just like there was no turning the titanic around when the iceberg was in plain view you know there's no stopping the runaway momentum of biosphere collapse or turning back time and making America great and turning back time on civilization in Canada and, and I don't know, Brazil. Um, the, you know, the only possible outcome of a revolution in consciousness would be a more graceful exit for our species. And that alone would be a beautiful thing. And it certainly beats the more likely alternative of more guns and more killing and more overall brutality. So I guess ultimately, um, I personally believe that if we remember, if we can remember, that we are not physical matter, that our physical existence is an illusion, then we can speak to death or rebirth, as I prefer to call it, because there's no dogma in that word. Um, we, can, we can speak to it in a far more evolved and interconnected way. I'm curious, Deb, have there been, what I'm assuming, uh, certainly in terms of your sharing story, uh, on the other side of the sort of the classic stages of grief, um, Paul Trafurka, who's actually uh, an Ottawa resident. If you don't know Paul Trafurka, he would really do well to know you and vice versa. He's an amazing, <laughs> amazing human being who's, who wrote extensively from 2007 to 2013 and then stopped and basically took a spiritual perspective, took a step back. He realized, you know, he wasn't going to transform the world. He wasn't going to transform consciousness. <laughs> and uh, he's truly one of the uh, my closest brothers in this work, and he's he's a neighbor of yours, so I'll introduce the two of you. But anyway, he talks about finding the gift on the other mm -hmm. side, and I'm curious: have there been things that have opened up for you in fully accepting 
uh, collapse and fully accepting extinction, uh, uh, quite possibly near term, uh, but inevitable in either a case, uh, and certainly the extinction of Homo colossus. Has there been something that's opened up for you in addition to what you've already shared that you want to share? Well, for me, uh, beyond acceptance is activated presence. So it brings me back to that. And my life, I, I've sort of said this already, but I'm going to say it one more time because it's so important to me. My life has never been more sacred, more beautiful, and more meaningful, even in the face of collapse and imminent extinction. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing is that in choosing to live this way, I'm more connected to life. And in that, I actually have a greater impact with everyone that I touch, like I've already chatted about. And I, the, here's, the, here's the ironic thing, and I, I wish I'd known this all those years ago when I was investing so much energy in my activism. I don't have to do anything but be my true self and live my deepest, continually unfolding truths. So it's so simple. And I, yeah. you know, we, we live in such a complex world where complexity is, is, it's just complexity layered on complexity layered on complexity. And when we just pair, take all that away, strip all of that away, simplicity is really the way that brings us closer to ourselves and closer to life. Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't even think about this until today or until like right now. I looked at my my uh, computer clock and it says September 24th. And all of a sudden I realized, holy shit, I think it was 10 years ago today that I had my first chemotherapy infusion huh. um, where um, I, it was September 24th or 25th, 10 years ago that I was diagnosed with aggressive cancer. And I think I began chemotherapy 10 years ago today or tomorrow. And I have not lost by the grace of life. I've not lost that sense of taking life not mm -hmm. for granted, treating it as secret, sacred, treating each season as if it were. And, and really that's just on a personal level what you've been talking about here is my life for the last 10 years, I've, I'm now 60, so I was 50 when I started chemotherapy, but, uh, and I, I haven't been on it for some years now, but I, uh, and I, I'm not aware that I have anything wrong with me, but I have not lost that awareness of death, my mortality as my ever-present companion and guide and lover, really. Um, and it just occurred mm -hmm. to me that today's probably the 10 year anniversary of that. The last question is um, about remaining opportunities and uh, really speaks to the question that I feel has been so present in our entire conversation, which is about, you know, what is beyond our control and what is, what is still available to us? What are the remaining opportunities? And, um, yeah, so what I would like to invite you to um, bring forward in our last minutes together is, um, how would you invite us in this conversation with you or anyone listening um, to activate activated presence in, in our daily lives? What, um, what tips or advice or just thought forms um, or practices do you think are really worthwhile for us to know about um, as, as you, you so beautifully say and see this as like the main opportunity that we have right now? You know, there's a great quote by uh, Neil Donald Walsh, and it pretty well sums up where I'm at in my life. And I feel like it's, it's appropriate and for everybody. I mean, he did write it for everybody. It's from the book Conversations with God. And that was a, a life altering book for me too. Again, that's, that's a no dogma religious book. Just totally very, very spiritual. Um, 
Yeah, that one, I, I read it. It's like, it's a huge book too. It's like 800 pages and I read it in within less than a week. I could not put it down. But there was one quote that really stands out for me. Uh, and he says, there comes a time in the evolution of every soul when the chief concern is no longer survival of the physical body, but the growth of the spirit, no longer attainment of worldly success, but the realization of self. So uh, I feel like he's really dis describing activated presence. That to me is what it's all about. And I don't really like, I don't have any practices for me. Uh, and it's not that I didn't, I used to have practices. I meditated. I've gone through, I, I, I've done it all. I'll bet I you're walking so. your dogs is a practice. <laughs> I don't really call it a practice. I, I call it just a life. Yeah. 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 A necessity for them for sure. <laughs> and it, well, I should say for me too. So maybe it is a practice. I, I don't really, I guess it depends how you define practice living my life in a way that is as connected as I can possibly be to what I know as my true self. That means making like every choice that I make, is it a life affirming choice? Mm. Every thought that I think, is it a life affirming thought? I can say that that's not always the case. Um, every you know, like the way I live my life, is it, does it, it does enhance capital L life. And um, although, you know, I'm still, I, I, I'd like to remo remove myself entirely from industrial civilization. I'm domesticated like everybody else. So I don't, I can do some wild foraging, but not a lot. And I have no interest in hunting because I'm a vegan. So, you know, like, um, I still have some ties to industrial civilization, but they're minimal. So I just minimize my, my connection to the outside world that just seems so insane to me. And in that, I'm able to stay more connected to myself. I spend as much time as possible in nature. I'm outside all the time. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how crappy the weather is, I'm out there. I'm not living out there because I'm in a house. So I guess for me, it's really just about connection. Um, to, to be activated in presence is to be, first of all, self-connected. And in that self-connection, it just naturally translates into connection with everything and everyone else. And I know that there's, uh, you know, I, I've, I've chosen, um, I guess I would say an early partial retirement um, I've been working as a freelance graphic designer for decades and I just don't feel the calling like, uh, you know, you were mentioning earlier about feeling connected to the body and my body's very clear that working like trading time for money is not a way to live anymore. It's not a way to, to enhance life. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, I have, uh, uh, you know, I don't have a full bank account. I haven't won a lottery or anything. So I still take on the occasional job if it feels right in my body. And my, my needs are so simple that I don't have a lot of expenses. So I just live very simply and do what feels right, do what I feel called to do. 
And I most, most importantly, mm -hmm. in the self intimacy that I have, I have deep trust that I will always not be taken care of, that I, the capital I, the, the big I, will always look after myself, that mm -hmm. the, the, the spiritual being that I truly am is always going to look after the fleshy mortal water bag that I am. <laughs> I don't have any fears anymore. And it's taken a lot to get over that because, you know, I think that it's not uncommon for most of us, if not pretty well all of us to have some kind of money scarcity fears. That's a, that's such a common one in our world and why people stay in jobs and relationships and, you know, in so many, uh, they do things that don't enhance their lives that don't perpetuate evolution you know on their part so i just live very differently and it's 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 all about trust self-trust and simplicity and i guess that's really that's kind of like the foundation for activated presence for me so hopefully that that's meaningful that's a meaningful answer for you yeah, I love the fact that you've mentioned um, simplicity because I, I've been thinking a lot about what I sometimes playfully call the sacred principle of enoughness. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. we have uh, we have a, a wonderful house guest right now, and uh, she said she said your house is very sparse, and she said and it feels really good. So <laughs> we we have we have everything that we need which is not very much because I realized, you know, like the, it, there is a, there was a, in the, the whole evolution, there's, I, I didn't get into the minutia of it, but there was a time when um, uh, we decided, my partner and I decided that we were going to attempt to live in an RV. And the whole, uh, the whole idea behind that was to have um, a mobile life that was simpler where we didn't where we could just put down roots in the natural world um, more frequently and just really connect with nature, but we, it became harder than we thought because there's so much land that's private and it's like, Oh my God, this world that we've created is so ridiculous. Anyway, um, in the, the, what I re recognize now is that when we decided that we were going to do this RV thing, it was never about the RV because neither of us ever liked it anyway, but it was about letting go. And yeah. so, um, it was amazing what we let go of so that we could live in a 26 foot living space without mm -hmm. feeling the need to put things in storage. So we got rid of everything and between two people and we, I think we had four cats and three dogs at that time. We all lived in that little 26 foot space with everything that we needed and we felt abundant. So that, that has that, that the, the metaphor of that experience is what I carry now throughout my life. Just like you mentioned, Michael, with the, your cancer, you, that those profound experiences, they're metaphors for something so much bigger. Yeah. Amen. Well, I can, I, I don't know. I probably have not shared it with you, but for 18 years, my wife and I have traveled North America living in other people's homes. So we don't, not only don't have a home or an apartment, um, but we live out of the generosity of others who open up their homes to us. So this idea that you spoke earlier of home, not being a geographical location, but a uh, state of mind and heart, we experienced that for 18 years now. And we've, fall in love with this continent of Nora. We have this personal I-thou relationship with Nora uh, is our personification, our name for this continent. 
Um, and it's living very simply, but living, we feel like we're richer than kings. We're the richest people on the world in the world, wow. even though we're wow. technically homeless. It's that's, that's amazing. I actually did a podcast a couple of years ago with a fellow who lives that way as well. And, mm. and it, it was just, I was fascinated by it. It was, he was actually, he, he kind of inspired us to try this whole RV thing. It's a little more challenging to live that way with Yeah, the animals. RV thing is much <laughs> yeah, more yeah. challenging in my experience because, you know, we're in a house, like here we're in Eureka, California for two months. So we've taken over the house. It's somebody's second home. So she's not here. And then we're on from here. So we often will stay in places where we have the whole house to ourselves for a month or two, sometimes longer. Um, and so, we, you know, our bedroom on wheels is our van. It's a Dodge Sprinter. So it's not even an RV. It's just a mm. van. Um, but we're able to move into people's homes. But that idea of being not one place located, living really simply, uh, not having many possessions at all. The biggest challenge for us was both of us had enormous libraries, so we gave them <laughs> to somebody who had actually had his entire house burned. He was a leader in this mm. movement. So at any rate, bottom line is that I love this simple itinerant life, um, um, following our bliss, like doing what we doing what we can to make whatever difference we can, knowing that um, things are contracting. And I am being asked to leave this room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to move out of this space because I've got five minutes to get set up for another conversation. So Deb, thank you okay. so much. This has been awesome. You've been awesome. I'm really glad to make this connection. And Gaga Davy, thank you so much for co-facilitating this. Yeah, thank you both so much. It's really, I'm grateful for who you are in the world, Deb. Yes. Well, thank you, Ganga, and thank you, Michael. I really, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation with both of you, and it's just nice to meet some other kindred spirits. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.